Dury cut his teeth on the British pub rock circuit before his debut made him a cult star. He never managed to duplicate the brilliance of this punk-fun classic, but the album's impact is felt to this day, even introducing the phrase sex, drugs, and rock and roll to the lexicon. You're listening to Chasing Rolling Stones, and this is episode number six, featuring New Boots and Panties by Ian Dury. Hello and welcome everyone to episode number six of Chasing Rolling Stones. This is Kyle coming to you again for another week of rock and roll history, opening up Rolling Stone Magazine's vinyl vaults and taking a listen to the top 500 greatest albums of all time list. We are now on a roll with producing these shows. I think I have a good development process uh, in mind when it comes to uh, the week-long rollout. So uh, for those wanting to be in the know, we do a little research on Tuesday nights. Uh, I do my listening study on Thursday where I kind of take a full deep dive into the album and jot down my notes about what I'm hearing. Show writing happens on Friday with a recording on Saturday, and then we save that editing and publication for Sunday so you have something to start the week with. Hoping you're enjoying these. I know I've had a few free friends, a few friends reach out to me with their thoughts. And I'll keep uh, at it week in and week out as I enjoy increasing my own music knowledge each and every week. Uh, Again, this is kind of like my rock and roll journal as I'm going through each of these albums. I just really, at the end of the day, wanted to know a little bit more about about how they were all produced and uh, wanted to get my thoughts out there on paper. And this is helping me accomplish that. So like I said, I hope you're enjoying it and uh, I'll keep at it uh, if you'll keep listening. Uh, So here is an observation as we now, I think we can say, have a trend with this list. So we started with number 500 with hip-hop. We moved into blues, jazz, rock. uh, And uh, last week it was kind of a mix of country-ish, blues, folk rock uh, with Bonnie Raitt. And so now we're focusing on early punk slash new wave slash pub rock, all my learnings this week, uh, as we dive in with Ian Dury. Now, one of the things I love about the Rolling Stone list is I appreciate the diversity that it comes with each and every number. Um, I know when it came out, it definitely had many detractors when it was first published, specifically those who didn't think that contemporary artists got their due, leaving out too much hip-hop, leaving out too much you know, metal and, and rock and some of the new stuff that had come about. But for me, as I'm kind of going through each and every week, it's been a different genre, a unique artist. Uh, someone who's actually contributed something uh, tangible to the legacy of the music industry. And uh, other than Bonnie Raitt last week, uh, all I've really had uh, so far, I've, I've had some really great, interesting stories in regards to how the albums were created. Um, and especially this week, led the way for, um, I, I think I think it did, you know, the semantics aside from when it was released in terms of time. I mean, to me, this is the leader of the punk movement in this, this album's release. And with its cost, crossbreed mix of all those different uh, diverse genres that we'll soon discover, uh, it created something incredibly new, something very distinctive uh, that I, after listening to this first time, I can't stop raving over it. I'm telling everybody I know to listen to this album. Uh, it's really great. So, 
Can't wait to get into it with you. Uh, but before we get into new boots and panties, I want to share my recommendation of the week. So this week, I want to talk about tacos. Uh, one of my favorite things, but not every taco, specifically breakfast tacos. Now, being a West Coast kid from Phoenix, you certainly grow up with a flavor palette that stimulates your taste buds and encourages your cravings uh, in the Mexican stylings. Uh, specifically at West, you want some heat. Even if it's the first thing you taste in the morning, you don't mind having your taste buds singed off with a little uh, hot pepper, salsa, and the like. So growing up, I put away many breakfast burritos in my time. Believe you me, uh, you can ask the folks over at Highland Market at the University of Arizona. They prepared my trezo eggs and potatoes for me on the reg from morning till night. Uh, no matter what time I was at it, I wanted and I craved those things. But alas, as I moved to the southeast, Trezo is barely known. It's very strange, very hard to get a hold of uh, in Orlando, Florida. And really, a good breakfast burrito is nearly impossible to find. I basically had to wrangle them on all my trips out west for vacations at the airport or wherever I could. Uh, so you can't imagine my excitement when not only did I move back west, but knew I was going to be able to get a hold of my morning manna that tortilla wrapped in all sorts of breakfast goodies. Uh, not only did I find that out here, of course, in California, but uh, in Los Angeles, they've gone one step further in the creation of the breakfast taco. Uh, now, I know what you're thinking. What could possibly be the difference between the two? Uh, you would uh, be somewhat right, uh, but here's the rub. You can only get one breakfast burrito. Really, I mean, let's be honest. It's uh, it's big, it's gigantic, it's uh, a mouthful to eat. And yeah, you can stuff it with all the ingredients you want, but uh, what if those flavors don't play nice with one another? Uh, let's say, what if the breakfast sausage overpowers the bacon or the chorizo outheats the potatoes? Solution, break all those flavors into multiple offerings, allowing you to try new concoctions of amazing combinations with each taco in front of you. Brisket and eggs with salsa, traditional bacon, eggs and potatoes, or throw french fries in with carne asada and a fried egg. The possibilities are endless, and so are the choices out here. So if you're ever out visiting La La Land, I want to give you, as my recommendation, not only to encourage you to try the breakfast taco, but here are my top three joints so far in breakfast tacos. Number three, home state. Located on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Feliz, these tacos get their flavor profile from the owner's Texas roots, so you get a little bit more of that barbecue styling. Number two, Wasados in Burbank, where they slow roast their meats all day and night, which leads to insanely tender tacos in both breakfast and regular offerings. And lastly, my number one is right around the corner from me, literally in a tiny white hut on the side street here in downtown Glendale. It's called the Great White Hut, and it is great, and it's a tiny little hut, and it's been slinging food ever since 1947. Added a new offering on their menu, which is the breakfast taco, uh, which takes this old-school 70-year-old joint into the Instagram age. Just go on Instagram right now. You'll find all sorts of crazy photos of the amazing food. I can tell you, any of these uh, breakfast taco joints will bring your taste buds pure bliss. So you make sure when you visit this crazy town of mine, you do not miss a chance to gorge yourself out on some breakfast tacos. Your Chasing Rolling Stones recommendation of the week. Now, I also want to share a new segment that may come in from time to time. Not every week, but in the event it occurs. And that is our listener addendums. 
Now, of course, this podcast is not infallible, and from time to time, there will be errors in information. But for the most part, I stand by my research. However, in the furious heat that arises from getting these shows out on time, I may completely miss a really great point or antidote that would have made the show even better. And when I hear this from my listeners, I want to share it with you as well. This week's addendum comes from my old roommate and dear friend, M. Domino, I'll avoid last first names, uh, who shared with me the awesome note that the final scene of the Blues Brothers movie, where Jake and Elwood Blues play the Joliet Jail, is very reminiscent of the B.B. King live in Cook County Jail performance. The old Joliet prison, in fact, is just a short 33 miles away from where B.B. played on that hot September day. Now, certainly the Blues Brothers movie deserves its own podcast discussion, but uh, it certainly was a connection that uh, I really enjoyed him making, and I I agree, it's a great way to end that movie, and uh, it certainly has its links to B.B. King as well. But that's not the reason why we're here today, now is it? We're here to do some shopping with Ian Dury uh, for some new kicks and unmentionables, or rather, officially, some new boots and panties. So let's drop that needle and begin. Play the music station. Now at number 495, we come to a point in Rolling Stone's top 500 greatest albums of all time where it's not only an album uh, that's shared with me that I've never heard of, but it's also an artist that I've actually never heard of either. Uh, And that's actually the brilliance when it comes to this project. It exposes me to new sounds, new voices that I didn't even know existed. Uh, But we can't just start with Ian Dury and his release of New Boots and Panties in 1977. No, rather, let's go back a little bit further and start earlier in the decade, around 1970. You see, that's the year Ian formed Kilburn and the High Roads, a British pub rock and roll band. Dury was the vocalist, and he co-wrote his songs with Russell Hardy, but that was hardly enough to make a full rock band. Now, luckily, Dury was teaching at Canterbury College of Art, where he was able to recruit a variety of students to fill in the remaining guitar and bass that was needed. The band were favorites on the British pub circuit, and they go on to release two albums in both 1975 and 1977, and even open for The Who. But it was not meant to be, and they dissolved after their second album. Dury and former Kilborn saxophonist Davy Payne would form a new band called The Blockheads, with members of other dissolved bands, signing to the newly formed Stiff Records. Ian Dury and the Blockheads quickly gained a reputation as one of the top live New Wave music acts. Now, New Wave, I'll say that interchangeably, because this may go back and forth, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, But the band drew their sound, uh, essentially from the members' diverse musical influences, which included jazz, rock and roll, funk, and reggae, as well as Dury's love of music hall, which is kind of that variety uh, vanguard styling. Their first single, titled Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, marked Dury's stiff debut, and although it was banned by the BBC, it was named Single of the Week by NME on its release. The single would soon be followed by their debut album entitled New Boots and Panties. However, it would be released under the banner of Dury's name alone. When you even hold the record in your hand, it says Ian Dury, New Boots and Panties. This oddity in crediting solely to Dury is actually due to the fact that the Blockheads were not officially formed until Stiff's live Stiff's package tour the month after its release. And actually, on this album, two members of the Blockheads are not even on it playing. 
like I said, you gotta use the genre terms interchangeably because here's a fun game. Although New Boots and Panties is considered a mix of genres, I wanna see if we can peg it down to one primary selection genre. And I'm gonna throw a few out there, uh, mostly the predominantly mentioned genres the album is linked to. You have pub rock, punk, and new wave. Now let's start with pub rock, which developed in the early mid 1970s, which puts us pretty in line with you know, Dury's comeuppance with both Kilbourne and the Blockheads and, and himself. Uh, and it develops in the United Kingdom. Uh, and it was really a back to basics movement, which is essentially a reaction against the expensively recorded and produced progressive rock and flashy glam rock of the time. So I guess we're kind of looking at you, Pink Floyd. Now the pub rock scene was primarily a live phenomenon, and during its peak years in 72 through 75, there was just one solitary top 20 single, which was Ace's How Long. All the bands combined sold less than an estimated 150,000 albums, so not exactly the most commercially successful genre of all time. But as can be said in multiple genres throughout history, it was this back-to-basics movement where you could feel that any person could be a part of it. Anybody could take part in it, as long as they could pick up a guitar, they could play some chords, and they could you know, belt out what they wanted to. Which leads you to believe, by this very nature, that it is a precursor to the punk movement, which is very similar in its uh, efforts. You'd be right. In 1974, uh, pub rock was the hottest scene in London, but it would be rapidly overtaken, especially in the UK, by the punk explosion uh, after several proto-punk bands kind of took flight. Now, in this transition, some were able, some artists were able to make the transition by kind of changing their stylings. Uh, Joe Strummer, Ian Dury, who we're talking about now, and even Elvis Costello uh, kind of changed gears a little bit. But as we're making this transition, there are also some kind of leaning much more into the punk phase like the Sex Pistols, for example. They're a group that eventually rejected the pub rock bands, as their lead singer, John Lydon, would call the genre, quote, everything that was wrong with live music. He felt that because they had failed to fight the stadium scene, and as he saw it, preferred to narrow themselves into an exclusive pub clique, it wasn't uh, meant to be. So the back-to-basics approach of pub rock apparently involved chord structures that were still too complicated for punk guitarists like the Sex Pistols, Steve Jones, to kind of master. Uh, Steve Jones even complained, quote, if we had played those complicated chords, we would have sounded like Dr. Feelgood or one of those pub rock bands. That wasn't us. As we switch gears a little bit and talk about punk, which was first used in relation to rock music by some American critics in the early 70s, they were using this to describe garage bands and their devotees. Uh, But by the 76th year, bands like the New York Dolls, Television, the Ramones in New York City, Sex Pistols, Clash in London, they were all being recognized as the leaders of this movement. So it was coming on pretty strong. The following year, 77, same as our album this week, the following year, punk rock was spreading around the world. It became a huge cultural phenomenon in the United Kingdom. And for the most part, it took root in local scenes that tended to reject association with the mainstream. I think we all know this. You know, you think of the punk subculture emerging and you think of, you know, young individuals who are, you know, distinctive in their clothing uh, that's against the mainstream, you know, uh, mohawks and leather jackets with spike bands. Now, the last 
genre I want to talk about and kind of in the swirl of it all is new wave, which sometimes this album gets placed in the category of just as Rolling Stone did in their uh, you know intro of this podcast. New wave is a genre of rock music that was popular in the late 70s to mid 80s. Uh, it does have its ties to the 70s punk rock. New Wave particularly moved away from the smooth blues and rock and roll sounds to create pop music, incorporated electronic and experimental music, mod and disco, um, which, if you listen to this album, it has a lot of those components. And like I said, New Wave is similar to punk rock uh, before it became a distinct genre. Though it incorporates much of the original punk rock sound and ethos, it's exhibiting greater complexity in both music and lyrics, and common characteristics include the use of synthesizers, electronic productions, uh, and of course, the importance of styling in the arts as well as diversity. So it's drastically different and yet still the same. So as we think of all these different factors, all these different genres, keeping them all in mind, I really tried. I really wanted to place this album in one and say, you know what, in my opinion, I think it's New Wave or I think it's, you know, punk. But you really can't. You know, certainly specific songs in this album fit into the narrative of those definitions, but half the time, Dury is jumping all over the place in style, or his delivery of the vocals is in big contrast to what the band is playing in the background in terms of uh, genre. And at the end of it, I mean, you may think of Dury as a punk, but he was a showman at heart. He had this demeanor when you watch him on stage that goes against the grain of kind of those hardcore punks who just wanted to see the world burn down into ashes in pure anarchy. So it's it's hard, but I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons why people love this album so much is it just is so different and so unique. But uh, let's, let's go to the album itself. New Boots and Panties was written mostly by Dury a year before the album's release. Uh, it would be recorded at the Workhouse Studio on Old Kent Road in Southeast London. Uh, and it was released on September 30th, 1977. Its success actually follows the release of the single Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, a single that was not exactly commercially successful and actually wasn't even included on the album's original pressing, mostly because Dury didn't really have a strong desire to have see singles included on an album. But it would be later included in pressing with that track, uh, although it would go uncredited at the start of side two, just like my, my version, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And although the album didn't reach the top of the UK charts, it did go platinum on June 4th, 1979. So two years, it goes platinum. And you may be wondering, you know, where the heck did that title come from? Well, it actually uh, is derived from Dury's love of buying secondhand clothes and boots and underwear with the only items he insisted on buying new. So a little, uh, a little factoid for you. When it was released, New Boots and Panties received overwhelming acclaim from the music press upon its release. The Guardian, which is a great UK uh, newspaper, one I kind of really trust in terms of all my news, when the album was released, uh, Robin Denzelow praised the honesty of Dury's songwriting, saying that the singer, quote, has refined, if one could use such a word of Dury, his style into a remarkable, distinctively London-oriented blend of Cockney Music Hall, rock, and Bowie-style electronics. This is mixed with no nonsense and no frills, with a set of powerful, forthright, and honest lyrics that will send self-consciously daring punks scurrying back to the safety of their dull cue cliches. 
I admire him for the way he throws himself full tilt into his emotions, using a backdrop as squalid as the worst of the East End for songs of unashamed sexuality, admiration, or hate. End quote. Whew. If I could get this show to sound like that writing, I would have a winner on my hands. I probably would, would, wouldn't even have to work anymore. Well, although the album was not a hit in the U.S., reviews by American critics were just as positive. Rolling Stone even said it was, quote, a provocative combination of Toulouse-Lautrec and Chaz Bukowski. Dury punks out in a laughingly distasteful way even as he sits on a cushion of personal warmth, feigning indifference. Whatever you choose to make of his talents, you won't be left untouched. Now, that doesn't seem as glowing as The Guardian, but hey, I mean, Rolling Stone gets it wrong usually in the beginning, and they make up for it in the end, right? Despite the, the issues with the commercial success versus critical success, it is beyond imperative that we recognize the album as a legacy in terms of just the first single alone, right? It kind of gets it up there in terms of the list of the greats. Having and proclaiming that sex and drugs and rock and roll anthem, uh, it's become not only the catchphrase for rock and roll, but hip-hop, punk, pop, electronica. Every genre since has lived up to that, you know, nomer uh, to get the most out of life. Sex and drugs and rock and roll, man. And Dury himself ushered into a music styling that you could blend multiple genres to create your own personal taste of art that would not only be commercially successful, platinum, remember, but push art and music towards the future. Uh, it really is a shame he enjoyed his success right before the dawn of the MTV age, if you think about it. I mean, it, can you imagine some of these songs and his personality on your television when MTV was just music videos and you could just see the artist? I think that would have totally you know, skyrocketed him uh, into a new stratosphere of reach in terms of new audiences around the world. Now, you may be asking me, what about the songs, Kyle? You know, how does the album really sound like? Well, the album opens with a sweepingly beautiful piano chord progression. It welcomes you to the album the moment you drop the needle on side A. But those keys won't be solo for long. 12 seconds in, and you get the disco beat and a synth beat. They both enter the party, followed by Dury himself with his thick Cockney accent. You can even imagine Bert from Mary Poppins is the lead singer of this album. It's that thick of a, <laughs> that thick of a uh, an accent, and in many of the reviews I read, it almost seems like he layers it on from his is what he traditionally sounds like. Um, and then once you get over that initial shock of his accent, you start listening to the lyrics and you start processing them in your mind, and you realize that track one, "Wake Up and Make Love with Me." Uh, lives up to the billing with its erotic rhymes bouncing between the Moog synthesizer. It's just a really awesome song. And really having no previous history with this album, I am just blown away by what I'm hearing. Uh, like I said, you don't know where to fit this album into genre category. Uh, they are just, the album's just on a different plane than anything I know of. You know, it really kind of, if anything, it fits in with that same time frame as The Clash. You know, when they're combining reggae beats and new wave sounds into this everyman lyric. And it really is that everyman production. Track two, for example, Sweet Jean Vincent, is not played for its purity of singing, but the arrangement is so unique and it travels through various genres in a matter of minutes, opening with a rhythm and blues guitar lick before some crazy lyrics that I can only explain as being in cadence familiar of a poem Alice would hear from a spaced out caterpillar in Wonderland. 
like just like Dylan, right? He didn't have the vocals, but he could create magic in a bottle, and he was the everyman for the folk genre. And I think Dury is that everyman for this mixed-up mongrel of a genre that uh, this album belongs to. But even in this song too, Sweet Jean Vincent, after the first minute and a half, you get dead silence, and then we enter this great balls of fire interlude that gives us a starting point for the Sex Pistols, and all the way even to Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. It's just that hard-spoken vocal, and you still get the rhythm and blues guitar licks that would fit on any Little Richard or Bill Haley record. It's, it's just out of this world, I'm telling you. As we move into track three, I'm partial to your abracadabra, it would, in my mind, of course be a perfect complement to Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London, just due to the instrumentals alone. I mean, you can make the link between the two. It's just, you almost, if you didn't know what was coming next, you may even, you know, mistake it for Werewolves of London. I'll take this moment to provide some background on my own music preferences. Now, personally, I prefer catchy musical hooks and instrumentals over lyrics. Don't get me wrong, lyrics do play an important role and sometimes make a, a song stand out over others, but for me to cling on to an album, to truly rate it as one of my favorites, I really need that tune that is going to get stuck in my head over the entire day or the entire weekend. One track that does that very well is number four, Mild Man. It combines saxes and a groovy bass line to create a running background track that allows Dury to eloquently speak about his father. The song has plenty of filler to allow the musicians to have some fun flourishes with mini solos that give this track a lush, lived-in feeling, and you really never know where it's going to go next. But specifically, I want to make a standout exception uh, to the sax solo that begins around the two and a half minute mark. Let's be honest, there aren't enough sax solos in the world, and to hear the wail of what I imagine is, you know, 70s mustachioed man with a headband, tank top, and a bushy head of chest hair, he is letting go, and it's pure magic, and I just want more in any song I hear. Now, if you want to capture the pure ridiculousness of Ian Dury's voice, you'll want to go ahead and skip straight to track five, Bill Ricky Dicky. Seriously, this is practically a caricature of what I would do if I were trying to speak like I was from London, mate. It is so cockney. Like, hello, governor. Cockney. That is literally how bad it is. But you take that introduction of the, the track and you go with it and you're going to hit the circus eventually. Uh, it's reminiscent to me of one of those really out there songs that the Beatles would put on in the middle of Sgt. Pepper uh, where you you're really like, where did this even come from? Um, it has this Oktoberfest tuba progression in the background, keeping time, and the hundreds of rhymes to Andy, Annette, or Icky. I mean, there's so many names. No joke, we go from Brandy to Sandy, to Andy to Shandy, back to Sandy, to Handy to Mandy, wrapped up with Brandy. So strange, but fitting that it ushers the end to side one in the original UK release. Flipping the record over, we begin with Clever Trevor, Wait, are we back to Bill Ricky Dicky? Uh, no, but seriously, Clever Trevor jumps us straight into the far out 70s, early 80s. It has a killer intro with an escalating wah-wah that hits its crescendo at Jupiter before it comes back down to Earth. Did I say how much I love this album yet? I'm telling you, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, this is madness how all over the place we are with each song, but it's so unique and so different. Literally stop, play this now. Track 7, If I Was With A Woman, continues the sound of the late 70s. 
Now, in my head, I'm imagining one of those retro cop shows, or even better, playing over the intro of Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley's Boogie Night character show, Brock Landers and Chuck Rockwell. Yeah, that's where this belongs. Now, Blockheads is track eight, and it has to be a call uh, to Dury's band of the same name. Uh, the song is so crazy because you have Dury shouting and screaming, and it really sets the stage for Johnny Rotten or others to come later in the punk scene. Um, but at the same time, despite all that, you have this Moog synthesizer making all sorts of like spaced out sounds like you're going into deep interstellar space. Track 8 is followed by track 9, Playstyle Patricia, which is almost reminiscent of ACDC snarling delivering their lyrics. It's that gruff growl of dirty deeds. This is where it's found first, as Dury shares the story of Patricia and her escapades. Now come to think of it, since If I Was a Woman, we have entered into a full punk scene with each of these songs in progressive order on the back half of the album, including track 10, which is Blackmail Man. There is so much freneticism coming from Dury, you are actually concerned he is going to run out of gas in his voice uh, before the conclusion. It builds and builds and builds, and he just doesn't stop. If the song was any longer than two minutes, I honestly think he would have exploded in the recording studio. It's that insane. Now, the original album, the original intent, has sex and drugs and rock and roll concluding uh, all of this, which, um, actually, no. I'm going to reverse my stance. Remember we said at the beginning that sex and drugs and rock and roll wasn't even on the original pressing. So that means when this this is the follow-up, it concludes sex and drugs and rock and roll, uh, which, is, which is a great song. You get a nice breakup from that uh, craziness that is you know, all that punk explosion that comes at the end. Um, and in this song, Dury has such a great, you know, vocal range. He hits these low notes uh, that turn your head if you're not paying attention. And uh, his standout accent lulls you back to comfort even when singing about his hedonism of sex and drugs and rock and roll. So um, that concluded my listening experience. But uh, if you haven't heard, heard it yet, go ahead, stop what you're doing. In fact, don't even finish the podcast. Seriously, go listen to this and come right back. I'll be waiting. I know, right? Wasn't that incredible? I'm sure you you are probably playing it three more times before you go to bed tonight. So the question is, what am I spinning exactly? Which version of all of this, you know, mess of tracks being placed different places, which, which one do I have? Well, I was able to pick up a copy of New Boots and Panties from a little hole-in-the-wall record store called Atomic Records which is located uh, just next door from me in Burbank, California on Magnolia Avenue. Now my version has a cover that's a little banged up and a few war wounds, but the record sounds amazing. The particular version I have is the 1978 release on Stiff Records. Now, although the original vinyl release was distributed in the UK the previous year, this copy is the original US version of the album, which I'm, I'm happy about. Now my particular copy, like I said, is a little banged up. Uh, the top right corner is missing, uh, almost as if it had been torn off, but the, ref the rest of the album has held up well. The front end image features Dury himself with a flashy white jacket with the flourish of a cravat and pocket square, but at the same time, he's wearing some baggy jeans rolled up at his ankles to show off his shiny black boots. It's, it's almost like he's dressing uh, to fit the album itself. You know, a mixture of club style with that of the blue-collar working man's lyrics. And now Dury, in this photo, he's actually standing in front of what appears to be the front of a department store. 
advertising used consumer goods. You know, he stands at the window with a tiny lad, must be eight or nine, looking just as cool and calm as Dury himself. The photo is a stark black and white image, but the artist's name and album title are screaming at you in neon orange. They stand out like a bar sign off a two-way highway at 1 a.m. after you've been driving for nearly 13 hours. Now that you've heard my impression on this album cover, let's take a look at the real story. The photograph for the album was taken by Chris Gabrin outside of Axford's underwear and lingerie shop at 306 Vauxhall Bridge Road in Westminster, close to Victoria Station in London. Gabrin's minivan and the Woolworth store at the opposite end of the road can actually be seen reflected in the shop windows. Now, although Gabrin was careful to position himself to uh, that of Dury, so he would hide his own reflection, so you can't see him. But the child, who I was just guessing was a random uh, lad, uh, next to Dury is actually his five-year-old son, Baxter. Gabrin said, I only shot 24 exposures, and Baxter was in just four of them. As soon as the films were developed, Ian came round, and we immediately chose the same shot. We were so excited by the picture that we went straight into my dark room and made the first print. The album's title, New Boots and Panties, was subsequently coined by Ian. Flip the album over and you get an incredible contrast to this front image. It's that same neon orange uh, color hue taking up all the background space with Dury intimidatingly glaring right at you. He's wearing a neon tee, a neon green tee specifically, constrained by black suspenders. The tea is interesting in and of itself. Uh, it's an image of a prancing female gymnast when you can't quite read the full title, but it starts out with CR something and then Valley Gymnastics C, which I have to imagine being club, Valley Gymnastics Club, which, you know, it's another homage to Dury's collection of clothing from thrift stores, as I can't imagine this guy being in a gymnastic club or on a parallel bar sets for the life of me. Next to Dury's head on the back cover, his uh, face is surrounded by album notes. On the left side of him is the track list for side one and two, clearly written in marker with Dury's signature confirming his intent at the bottom. Now he also leaves a note proclaiming there's nothing wrong with it. And I agree, great track set. The right side is filled with liner notes and credits, which at this point I feel is a perfect moment to compliment the incredible band who helped bring this album to fruition. You have Charlie Charles on drums, Nerman Watt Ray on bass, Chaz Jenkel on guitars, and keyboard. Plus a few, you know, stars, MVPs, in my opinion. That great sax solo, well, that was brought to you by Davey Payne, and Jeff Castle is the genius behind the Moog synthesizer. Also, I want to point out that Dury would like you to know that this record was not produced and recorded at the workhouse in Old Kent Road, but I'm actually here to tell you that yes, yes it was. My last comment regarding the design of this record is the vinyl label itself. So you hold the record in your hand, and much like last week where I noted the cool factor for any Warner Brothers record, Stiff Records is also no slouch. Seriously, the design of this label is the stuff of legend, straight from the early days of zines and self-made promotion. Um, Stiff, the record label, is written in unique hand design uh, type font, and it's surrounded in black to really make it pop out in kind of a creamish color. Uh, so the next time you go to your vinyl store, you can actually probably get a sense for what I'm talking about. Just look for all the homemade band or concert posters, and you'll know exactly what I mean. 
Now for those of you always looking for the cool and unique, it does look like there is a rad orange vinyl pressing reissue of the album out there on 180 grams from Drastic Plastic Records. And you're in luck because it is still in stock. I'll throw a link on the blog where you can find this. It would be a killer ad to anyone's collection, and you better hurry because it looks like they only pressed 500, and I am about to get one myself. And lastly, like I said before, a quick note about my copy compared to the original UK release. You know, the American vinyl pushed sex and drugs and rock and roll onto the track list. It starts out on side B, probably due to the track being a single when first released. Or I think it's a mistake. When I listen to it, you know, either you don't have it on the side B or you put it at the end, right? Because it completely changes the progression of the songs in the back half. You have this ratcheting up of energy, leaving you exhausted when you listen instead of bringing you back to kind of the earlier vibes you were listening to at the beginning of the record. So really, as we learned with Stone Roses, you don't trust the reissues. The label always screws things up and regardless, you know, trust the artist. This album is a gem. It is a new favorite of mine for sure, and I'm thankful Rolling Stone introduced me to it. Well, that concludes episode six, New Boots and Panties. Thanks everyone for listening to the show. If you have a comment or suggestion, please don't hesitate to email me at chasingrollingstones at gmail.com, or you can visit the website at www.chasingrollingstones.com, where you'll find my blog with a little more info on each of the albums featured in the episode. I like to have fun posting photos, links, and other sources. Uh, They're all listed there as well. And uh, if you are on the interwebs, don't know if you know this, but it is exploding these days, uh, don't forget uh, to check us out on social. We're at Twitter and Instagram at the handle at chasing underscore RS. And uh, feel free to give us a review. You know, throw us some feedback on either email, social, or go to the iTunes page. Even better, give us a rating and review there. A little bit does go a long way, and I would be most appreciative. I'd also like to send a big thank you to Blank and Kit for the theme song of the show, titled RSBN, as well as Evan Schaefer and Jahazar for this week's backing music. As always, I would like to thank Leslie for all of her support and encouragement in following my passions. She actually did a really amazing thing for me. She created a little shelf that says now spinning above my uh, record player that I can now place my album covers on. And I have a nice little place uh, where they don't get lost or scuffed up. So I will post that so you can see it as well. Uh, And lastly, of course, a big thank you to Rolling Stone Magazine for inspiring the show. Uh, We'll see you next week as we take a closer look at number 494. And really, there's not much to say without giving it away. So I'll have to drop a sports hint to make the link. Uh, Our artist next week shares his name with one of the biggest NFL draft busts of all time. Find out who that is next week on Chasing Rolling Stones. Thanks, everyone, and be excellent to each other. (laughs) 